We're in Mark chapter 4. Let's do this 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 evening. Let me start off with asking you a question. What made Jesus such a good teacher? They said about Jesus, they said he taught like nobody else. He was totally different. What made him such a good teacher? Any ideas? What's that? Okay, in fact, the scriptures say he spoke with authority. Okay, uh, remember how did most teachers in Bible days, how, let's say Danny over here is, is you just walked so you became an example. Uh, Danny's teaching the teens downstairs. A typical Pharisee teaching, what would Danny quote a lot of? To, make, make, to say that he's an authority. He would quote other Pharisees. Okay, what did Jesus quote? He quoted scriptures. He just kept on going back. As if he didn't need somebody else to give him authority. He had the word of God. What else made Jesus a unique teacher? He knew what his students were thinking. Okay, okay. You didn't, if you didn't hear that. He knew what they were thinking. Therefore, does that help teaching? If all of a sudden I'm talking to you, and if Leon, if I could, read your heart and all of a sudden say, okay, let me answer your question. And you didn't even ask it yet. Would that catch your attention? Yeah, amazing. What else made Jesus so unique when he was teaching? Can you think of other? Uh, there's, there's a couple other phrases in Scripture. Go ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, in, in that regard, compared to the others, he was, he was teaching everybody. He was letting the kids come up to him. Most of the time they didn't do it. He would let the ladies come up to him. In that culture, they typically didn't do that. He would let especially what type of people come up that nobody wanted any dealings with. The lepers, tax collectors, things like that. There is a phrase that comes out of Luke that says his, his manner of speaking was so unusual because he spoke with... Something in his mouth. It's not love. There's another term, but it's very similar. He spoke with grace. His words were filled with grace. Very gracious in his speaking. There's, there's a lot of reasons that he's an interesting teacher. From a perspective of you who are doing some teaching, it would behoove you at times to study Jesus. How did he present truth to kids? How did he present truth if he was doing a Bible study? One of the things Jesus typically did that you enjoy when you're sitting and listening to somebody usually the thing you remember more than anything else are the I was, I, morals is good but typically for most of us what is it that catches our attention the stories, the illustrations and Jesus was masterful at telling stories he would often and sometimes not just tell a story but he would use metaphors and he would bring spiritual truths down to a level that everybody could understand let's take the, the, the most awesome truth being, becoming a Christian Jesus used metaphors he used illustrations to help his audience of all ages to understand what it meant to become a believer in him he used things out of everyday life like what? Except you be born again. You cannot see the kingdom of God. He used birth. And, how, and we all understand how that illustration applies. Birth is something we don't do, but we achieve it because of somebody else's painting and laboring. What other illustrations did he use to try to describe that whole idea of salvation? That was profound when you think about it. Think about other relationships that he used as parallels marriage. Okay. The Apostle Paul developed the most, but Jesus talked about it that he was, you know, he had his best friend and John brings it in that idea of, of being married. They use at other times eating and drinking. Remember how Jesus talks about if you eat my flesh, drink my blood, that whole idea that you're going to get nourishment and it'll be life everlasting. He talked and used well water as an illustration. Um, when he talks in the epistles through the apostles as he's giving out other illustrations, he uses something that we're very familiar with to show about that unity that we have in Christ, that, that spiritual uh, connection with Christ and with one another. Do you remember what illustration he uses in 1 Corinthians 12 that everybody can relate to when he talks about you, some of you think that because you are this part or that part, you're not important? Do you remember what that overall story is about, that illustration? The body, the human body, he uses it as well. He used something that they would understand. I mean, everybody in Bible days would understand the sheep and the shepherd. Because it was such a common, everyday occurrence. You'd walk anywhere and you'd see sheep and shepherd. And he used a lot of those things. Now, Jesus in his teaching, 
He also used a tool that he popularized. It was used somewhat. But we, in historically, we always look at Jesus as being the real expert on parables. Parables comes from the word that we mentioned, Pastor, I mentioned last couple of weeks. It's two words put together. Para and balo. It means to cast beside. A parable was just giving a contrast or giving an illustration, the similarities or dissimilarities, taking an object from everyday life, sowing seed somebody who's doing farming, and saying, in that way of sowing seed, let me tell you, this is what the kingdom of God is like. In, uh, in the way of having faith, if you have faith as big as a mustard seed, you can then move the mountains. Okay, he's using everything that people right away could relate to, and they would, they'd be able to uh, click with them. Now, in Mark chapter 4, as we saw last week in the beginning of the study in this text, Jesus is going to be speaking, and he's going to give a series of par- parables in Mark 4. So one of these parables occurs nowhere else in any of the other Gospels. And I want you to catch the unit, and just to see, like when you do Bible study, do this type of research. You look and begin, and if you have a letter edition, it's really easy to catch this. Then all of a sudden in Mark chapter 4, it gives you the beginning of where Jesus starts speaking down in verse 3. And that seems to be almost continuous all the way through down to verse 32. I have a red letter, so almost all of those verses are in red. Interesting. Look at the verse right preceding that section. Go to verse 2, where it says that Jesus taught them many things by what? by parables, and said unto them his doctrine. Now, then it all of a sudden it introduces, it says he's speaking in parables. Then you go through and just page down the, through your passage. He gives one, two, three, four, possibly five different parables. And when he's done with them in verse 32, look how it wraps up. In verse 33, and with many such parables spake he the word unto them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable spake he not unto them. And when they were alone, he expounded these things unto his disciples. Those two verses that introduce what's happening and then conclude what's happening indicate something to you and me. They indicate that everything in between there is one unit of thought. That there is one continuous theme that he is working with or he is dealing with or the idea of he is driving to direct some spiritual truth that Mark says it it all connects somehow. It is amazing how it connects. Now what you and I need to do is connect it properly and interpret it properly to get the right lessons out of it. Not just what we think, but what was he driving at? In order to get those right lessons, we have to back up a little bit. We have to know who he was talking to. We have to make sure we understand when he was saying this. Was there an event that took place before or after that would trigger these parables? I think there is. It's very clear in chapter 3. And then that helps us to understand exactly what these parables were doing and what he was intending to do. Let's set the scene. The scene is this now, that Jesus has a ministry. Roughly how long does his ministry last? Three, three and a half years, okay? Between three and three and a half years. The first few months of his public ministry after his baptism, then what was the next big event after his baptism? He gets led out into the wilderness for the temptation, and then he is going to do some work around Jerusalem. About the first three, four months is involved with his introduction. Then he ministers in Judea down in the southern area around Jerusalem for about eight months. That ends, and by the way, during that time, it's when he is doing some baptisms as well. He and his disciples, John 3, and John the Baptist is doing some baptisms. Some of the crowd is leaving John the Baptist, and they're going to Jesus, and John the Baptist crowd say, what's this? Everybody's going to him, and John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must Okay, now that's your setting. And then something happens after about eight months of that Judean ministry that Jesus suddenly leaves the area, and he shifts in a ministry. It's the arrest of John the Baptist. Jesus leaves the area, and he goes up north to the region where he grew up. We call it the region of Galilee. He spends the next 18 months. Now, he makes trips down for Passover. But he spends the next 18 months up in that region in the north, and he ministers. This is when most of the Gospels are recorded. Most of his miracles, most of his sermons on the mount, those types of things. And Jesus is preaching. During this period of time, is he popular or unpopular? He's got a 50-50 chance. 
This is the very first part, first half of his ministry. Popular or unpopular? He's very popular. Very popular. Watch how Mark sets that up for us. Mark makes you, you and me understand. Go to chapter 1. And just look at a couple of verses that you've seen over the last few weeks. Mark chapter 1. Jump down to verse 33. And it says, how many of the people were gathered? The, the entire city came to hear what he was going to say. Jump down to verse 45. He went out, began to publish things abroad. That is this man who was healed. Insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into where? into the cities because the crowds are so great. Go to chapter 2, and it talks about he was entering into Capernaum, and it was noise that he was in the house, and straightway many gathered, insomuch there's no room for the, any more people to gather in the house. Go a little bit further, down into, verse, uh, down into chapter 3. Let's jump there, and jump into like verse 7. Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea. Let's go a little bit further. Go down to chapter 4, verse 1, and let's set our scene for the parables. He began to teach by the seaside, and there was gathered unto him a few people. What's the Bible say? Great multitudes came. In fact, there were so many people <coughs> that what does Jesus have to do? Look, notice the detail. Mark wants you to get all kinds of detail to set the scene. There is such a great crowd, what does Jesus have to do? He has to get into the boat and go a little bit offshore. Why? What is that going to help him to do? Okay, it's going to help him project his voice. The water's going to provide a natural reflection of that voice, and it's going to be able to speak because right above him is going to be the hills that are leading down. So he's got this natural amphitheater. There is also, if you go back into chapter 3... <coughs> And it's around uh, verse 10. That at times when Jesus was crowded, okay, could it be dangerous to be crowded by a crowd when you're walking along the seashore? What, what could possibly happen if the crowds keep on trying to reach out for you? Yeah, you, you could you fall into water? Could your, your whole presentation be disrupted? And so Jesus is there, and it's a, it's a wise move. He's out there. Oh, can I throw a thought out for you? It's just coming to my mind real quick. Let me throw this out. Isn't it interesting how the gospel writers present this, the whole stories? There are those who would run up and say, oh, these are, these are fictional stories. These are you know, just elaborated legends. These are stories that men concoct that they just wanted to build Jesus up or themselves up. It is interesting that like in Mark, Mark is so explicit in details that he, years later, he gives us the scene that Jesus, because of the crowds, he's going into this. And he gives all these nuances, these details, where if you and I were just giving something mythological or legendary, we probably wouldn't be as oriented to all the details. As well, when people write legendary material, how do they usually present the heroes in the story? Good light, bad light. What is the tendency? Good light. Okay. Notice how these guys even present themselves. Mark, remember, Mark is speaking. He's writing. Probably he's getting his information from Peter. And notice how Peter describes himself. If we jump down to, oh, let's catch it, verse 13. Look at verse 13. Jesus has to say to Peter, James, John, all of them, don't you know that, don't you get the parable? They're presented as dunce. They're presented as very dense and dull and not catching it. This idea that these are mythical stories, these are legendary, that's just not true. Scriptures presents itself with so much detail and so much honesty. It is true events that are happening. And they're revealing exactly what's going on at this moment. Well, Jesus is saying, uh, the story is saying that Jesus is teaching. He's giving out this truth. And as he's giving out the truth in this area, he is going to speak because of the crowds. And in this crowd, there are a variety of people. There is the multitude of people who are coming because what are they after? What are most people following Jesus for? Yeah, the healings, the miracles. There's, so that's the bulk of the people that come that they'll keep on following him until finally he is, his message in John chapter 6 and chapter 7 gets so firm that you have to eat my flesh. You have to no longer love parents as much as you, as you would love me. And that, that sets most of them off because the cost is too high. That's a large majority. There is also a group that is following him who are his 12, his 70, very 
devoted. They're the ones who are dense. They have more, higher hopes than what's happening. There is also a group, a group of critics. While these guys, why they keep on hanging around is behooves us. I mean, I remember my mentor in ministry telling me that there was a fellow in the church that stayed 20-some years in this church, and he told the pastor repeatedly, I hate you. I hate you. I hate what you're doing in the pulpit. I hate your ministry. And the pastor would say, why are you here? I'm waiting to see you fall. I'm waiting to see you fail. Now, why would anybody want to be around you know, in a critical spirit like that? Except for the Sadducees who had that spirit. They wanted to see Jesus fail. They came with an agenda. Understand that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who have been following him and challenging him in chapter 2 and chapter 3, they were assigned to do this. By Sanhedrin law, when anybody came and became popular and there was talk of Messiahhood, they would by law have to send delegations. They usually sent three delegations. And so they sent the delegation to Jesus. They would do some examination, find out background information. The second delegation was supposed to interrogate him further. And then there would be a third delegation which would do more interrogation. So whether it's the second or third interrogation, we're not sure. But they are coming to Jesus. And if you read in the other Gospels, they are saying, show us a sign. By whom do you, do you have this authority to do this? And they're combating Jesus. They're critical of Jesus. They're trying with a critical eye to find flaw and fault. They've already had their mind made up. He was guilty before their investigation started. But they come to a point in, the, in chapter 3... This, to me, is the critical point of chapter 4. In chapter 3, they come to a point where they conclude, they have to decide, what's our recommendation we're going to give the Sanhedrin? Well, if you look at chapter 3, and it happens to be at the very bottom of the page in my Bible, but it shows up in verse 22 in yours. In chapter 3, verse 22, their conclusion and their recommendation, and by the way, look at how it says, describes which came from where. What does your Bible say? They're from Jerusalem. This is the investigative group. That they came from Jerusalem. Their conclusion is Jesus is working in league with who? He's working in league with Satan. They have concluded that he and Baals above Satan are in, in courts. Then Jesus responds. And Jesus says they are that, that idea of how can a house be built if it's divided amongst itself. And he gives logical arguments. He gives uh, theological arguments. Would Satan be undermining Satan? That makes no sense when I'm casting out demons. And then he makes a statement to them that condemns them. It is him as a judge before he is wearing the hat of a judge. He is coming in mercy. But for them who have made these statements, for them who have rejected all the truth. In fact, if when you go in Mark, Matthew chapter 12, look it through. In Matthew chapter 12, the parallel account, Jesus just did some miracles. And these guys come up and say, show us a sign. He just did them. Every sign that he comes up with, they ignore. And so Jesus comes to the conclusion and he says, if you sin against the Son of Man, you can be forgiven. But if you sin against whom, you cannot be forgiven. If you sin against the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is empowering and witnessing and bringing all this to light, and he comes to that conclusion where we have that, that doctrine that says there is a, what kind of sin? Un, pre, unforgivable or unpardonable sin. Understand the story. These men have just crossed the line. They have committed the unpardonable sin. They have had more truth presented to them than you and I with the whole complete scriptures. They are seeing it in the flesh. They are seeing and watching him. They see how he speaks, how he acts, and he says, you cross the line. Okay? You, you've just, you now have condemned yourselves by your rejection. Now, what happens in his ministry is very interesting. And this leads to chapter 4. From that point on in his ministry, there's a shift. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't ignore, but Jesus doesn't focus on public ministry. What he does now for the next year is he takes the disciples aside. And he is not ignoring crowds that follow him, but he is focusing more on teaching the twelve. Teaching and training the twelve. For the next twelve months, he'll even leave Galilee. He'll go on the other side of the Jordan River at times. And he is preparing the twelve for his departure. He is giving them information about what's going to happen to him, 
what's going to happen after he leaves. And so the parables that we get in chapter 4 are right on the ending of where this is, the beginning and the ending. The ending of a ministry with great crowds, a beginning of a ministry to train his 12 on how to do ministry when he leaves. They don't even understand that's what's happening. But in hindsight, we know that. We understand what Jesus is doing because it becomes clear as he heads to Jerusalem, starting in Luke chapter 9 and makes that journey all the way down in that last few weeks of his life. And so when these parables are being spoken, they're spoken at a time when it is a critical turning point in his ministry. So that gives us some of the background that's very important. To whom that he's preaching to at this moment, to whom is very simple. In verses 1 and 2, it's great multitudes. Multitudes out of Galilee. It includes the Jewish leaders who are there investigating, examining him. But very clearly, in verses 33 and 34, it tells us that it's his disciples. And when it's all done, according According to verses 33 and 34, he is really targeting his disciples. He wants them to understand what he's saying. And so when we answer this question, okay, what's the theme of the parables? That's an easy one. There's a repeating word that keeps on coming through. Hearken, hear, hear. If you have an ear, hear. Thirteen times it's mentioned in these parables. That idea of listen, listen, listen. It, it goes like this. It goes like if any of you have been a parent for any, any period of time when, when those children are a little, bit, a little bit older where they're communicating back with you, you have had this conversation. You have said to them, are you listening to me? Or essence of that. It doesn't mean that they don't have ears that they, they haven't heard you. It means you're saying they aren't. They aren't taking it in. That's a good way of putting it. They hear. It's kind of like, have you guys, this never happened to you. It happens to me. When I'm sitting and listening to somebody preach like I'm doing right now, I can at times hear them but not hear them. Does that ever happen to you? Nobody's going to say a word. Okay. Um, True confession. Okay. Your mind is going elsewhere for a moment. You're hearing it, but you're really not taking it in. That's a lot of what happens in the parables. Take it in. They hear, but they aren't taking it in. Hearken, hearken, hearken. Take it in. Listen to me as he's going through. And he's giving them. Now his main, his main purpose is, is found in verse 11. And this was reviewed. I'm doing a little bit of review before I give you the thoughts. But in verse 11 unto you the disciples is given the mystery of the kingdom. I remind you, a mystery when it shows up in scripture is referring to the idea of something not previously revealed. Has the kingdom of God been talked about in the Old Testament? Yes or no? The physical kingdom, the promised kingdom, with Messiah ruling and reigning on earth. Has that been talked about in in the Old Testament? Yes, it has. Okay, so he's not saying to them, unto you is I'm revealing new truth that nobody, and that new truth is about the physical kingdom. He's talking about a different aspect of the kingdom than the physical kingdom of Jesus coming to earth. He's talking about kingdom work. He's talking about how things are going to work, how he is going to work ministry, and how the ministry is going to happen once he leaves or in the last half of his ministry, and then after he leaves the kingdom. So when he's talking about, I'm giving you a mystery of the kingdom, I'm giving you a mystery of how God is working, and how he's going to work. We'll see it really unveiled in, these, in the latter parables, what we mean by that. But he says to them, I'm giving you truth. For now, just, say, just understand, he's talking about not the physical kingdom, but the activity of preparing for that kingdom. Getting it ready. Presenting the truth of the kingdom. And so he says, okay, with that in mind, what I'm doing is I'm going to present this in such a way that some people will not be able to understand it. I'm going to talk about how I'm working, what's going to happen in the future, how the working of God is going to take place. And I'm saying it in such a way that those who have already crossed the line, those who have accused me of being in league with Beelzebub, they aren't going to understand. They, they won't be able to hear it with their heart. That's those who have already judged themselves, condemned themselves. That's the leaders who have condemned him already. So he's going to speak in parables. They won't get it. And he's saying it in parables because he wants to keep... But by the way, this makes perfect sense to me. 
if he is going to reveal how he is going to work, why is he going to reveal all of his plans to his enemies? He wouldn't give them the battle plan. He wouldn't reveal all of how he's going to work in the future and how things are going to happen. He would, he would put things in code or he would put them in a vague sense. He's doing that by the parables. He is speaking in parables to the multitudes. To the multitudes that say you need to check your heart. You need to check the heart. That's very clear. You all understand that from the four soils. He is primarily speaking to his twelve. His 70. He is explaining unto them how things are going to work in the future. What they should be preparing. And he's going to be saying to them, ponder this. They're not going to catch it. They're going to have to remember later on what he said. They're going to have to think upon it and dwell upon it later on. You have the advantage. You can dwell upon it right away, right now. Because you understand how the story unfolds. But he's revealing to his disciples, here's how things are going to unfold in the future. To prepare them for what they're going to face in the future. The battles, the struggles, the animosity, the persecutions, the flack that they will get from from the Jewish leaders. And he speaks a lot about that in the form of parables. And what they need to do to combat the opposition, what they need to do to continue contributing to the kingdom of God. And so as he's going to unfold for them, let's start and let's just set, let's get, get the thoughts of where he's going with this. In that first parable that you are the most familiar with, it's the parable of the soils that we heard about last week. The parable of the soils, <coughs> Jesus tells about that. And he's probably sitting in a boat and all of a sudden he sees some guy on the hillside off in the distance sowing seed and he says, just like that. That guy, here's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like somebody sowing the seed. And then he defines the seed. We know it's the word of God. He defines the sower being the son of man. <coughs> and he says there are four different types of soil. And you all know this. The really rock, uh, the, the pathway that is so beaten down that the soil can't get in. And as soon as the seed goes down, who comes and takes away the seed? Hello, you guys know this really well. Okay, the birds come and the bird is representative of... Okay, by the way, can I, can I throw this out? All four of the soils here. This, is, this isn't groups of, of um, non-religious people. This is like a church setting. He's describing what happens in a church service, if you would. There are people who are there whose heart is really rock hard. When they hear the truth, when they hear it presented, they might say, well, I still have questions about faith. How do you answer the dinosaurs? How do you answer where they got their, where, uh, where Cain and Abel got their wives? How do you answer the miracles? And there's doubts, there's criticisms, there's, there's skepticism. And right away, Satan's snatching it away. Then there's that rocky soil that's by the, right next to the pathway. In that rocky soil, it receives. If you look at the passage where he talks about and explains, he says down in verse 16, they receive the word. And by the way, he, this is the one he gives emotion to. That's interesting. He describes, he says, that in verse 16, they hear the word, immediately they take it with what type of emotion? With gladness. But then, a short time later, what happens to it? All of a sudden, it says a short time later, Soon as there's some type of affliction or persecution, immediately they are stumbled. This is like the individuals who all of a sudden they're quick to make a decision. Really glad that they made a decision based more upon emotion than upon reflection. And what happens when we base all of our decisions spiritually on emotion? If it's based purely on emotion, it won't last because it lasts as long as... The emotion lasts. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm cynical. And, I'm, and, I, and I really balk at times. When I hear about people going down to the beach. And they do a church ministry or beach or down in some type of, some type of you know, ministry. Whether it be in the inner city of Philly or Chicago. And we go down and we're going to take an evangelistic group. And we went down there for three hours. And in those three hours we saw 500 people get saved. I get skeptical of that. Because it's not that it can't happen. The book of Acts does say it did happen. But typically, that is probably such a quick presentation that is all of a sudden there's real quick people grab the word. And if I walked up and I said, hey, mister, your name is Lewis. Do you want real joy in your life? And you're going to say what? Sure. I mean, who wants to say, no, I like to be, well, maybe you would. No, I want to be miserable. Well, then if you want real joy in your life, repeat these words after me. Is that real conversion? 
Man, days. Then what happens? The next guy who comes along and says, hey, I've got some news from Joseph Smith. Yeah, and then it's, it just fly by night. Then he says there's a third soil. The third soil is that type of soil that the thorns come. In other words, these people never counted the cost. They wanted things to go easy. They, they, made it, they, they accepted, but all of a sudden, when things get difficult, they're gone. Okay. Have you ever seen that happen? And then he talks about the final soil. You know the good soil. The good soil he talks about, and he mentions these are they in verse 20, that the word of God is sown, they hear the word, and they bring forth all this fruit. Now, let me, let me pause. This whole parable is about the soils. That's the focus of the parable. The focus of, we can, we can draw applications, and we can talk about the seed, and we can talk about the sower, but really, he's focusing on the soil. And he's saying it to a crowd of people, and he basically, his implied question to them is, what type of soil are you? Okay, where are you from? Where are you at? How are you responding? And that makes perfect sense because of the multitude here. Most of this multitude wants what? Miracle. Quick fix. They want happiness. And as soon as the Pharisees put the screws down, what's going to happen to most of these people? They're going to disappear. So Jesus is preaching. But I think he's explaining more of this to his disciples and preparing them for what they're going to face in the future. I think he's speaking to people more in our day and age of what ministry is like, what service is like, what, what doing kingdom work is going to be like. Three out of four of the soils don't produce fruit. What does that say to you? about the majority of people. Many, many will hear or many are called, but few are chosen. There is a straight gate, and then there's that wide gate. Which, which one of the roads is most traveled? The broad street, the wide gate. What's he saying to us? Can I, can I give you a, what I think is a lesson out of that parable? God's work is more about people's, what would you put here? It's more about their hearts than it is about the numbers of people. It's more the disciples, get this, get this guys. He's saying to the disciples, keep this in mind. It's not about the numbers. Oh, by the way, did John the Baptist's disciples get more concerned about numbers than hearts? They did. Did Jesus' own disciples get concerned about numbers at time? Yeah, we're going to stop that guy from doing ministry because he's not of us. And he is saying a real simple message to you and I, that it is more about what is in people's heart than it is numbers. Could, could Jesus' disciples in days gone by, could they have gotten great crowds of people coming to them and hearing them? Well, they did at the beginning in Jerusalem. They had vast numbers of people. They couldn't keep up with them. And then what happens? Persecution arises. And those guys could have easily just fallen off and said, oh, hey, this isn't working. We've got to go back to working and being in agreement with and finding a compromise solution with the Pharisees and the pressure and get the pressure off our back because it's all about how many people we can get. It's about how many numbers we can get. And Jesus is saying, it's not about numbers. It's about hearts. It's, not, it's, it's that way for us today. Now, do we ignore the numbers of people? No. But what we need to remember is we do not evaluate people's ministries. Let's not evaluate missionaries' ministries based purely upon numbers. Let's not evaluate churches, preachers, soul winners, witnesses, based purely upon numbers. Let's see what kind of fruit there is what kind of impact that they are having in that, re- in that regard. It's not about crowds. It's not about popularity. It's not about the numbers of money that make something right. We're not right just because we have a bigger number or a bigger church than somebody else. It's not about numbers. It's about integrity of the heart. It's about purity. It's about hearing the word of God and producing fruit. He goes on. And I think there's another profound lesson for his future ministers of his gospel. And he goes with another parable that doesn't seem to fit, but in this context, it makes perfect sense. In verse 21, 
He said unto them, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed, and not to be set on a candlestick? For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested, neither is there anything kept secret but that it should come abroad. If any man have ears to hear, ears to hear, let him hear. And I look at this and go, I don't get it. I don't get at all what he's talking about. Until you sit and think in context, what is he doing? He's asking questions, by the way. You may want to mark your Bible. His first question goes this way. Is a candle... The candle is not what you and I would think a candle. They didn't use those typically. They're using one of those, those flat uh, pottery uh, dishes, is what he's talking about, that was filled with oil and a wick on it. That's what he means by candle, literally by the, ter- the word that's used here in the original language. And he is saying, do you buy a candle, or, uh, do you buy this light, so that you can put it under a bushel, or you can cover it with furniture? The answer to that question is no. By the way, he asks it in such a way that it's no. You have to answer no. Then he asks the second question in such a way in the original language that he says that it should be set on a candlestick. And the answer to that is... The idea of a candlestick, by the way, is anything that is in a high spot. Um, you remember seeing pictures of homes in those days? They had a niche in the wall, and they could put the, the, um, the pottery lamp. They could stick inside that little crevice in the wall. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, that's called a lampstand. So he's saying, would you, would you, if you got a lamp, would you bring it into the house and put it in this spot? And the answer is... Yes, yes, and it's very clear in the original language, no and yes. And so he's talking about that whole idea of of what we do, and then he goes on, he says, there is nothing hid, and, and look at the wording, there is nothing currently hidden, which shall not be made, which shall not be all of a sudden presented, manifested. In fact, it's in secret right now, but it's going to come abroad. Okay, let's, let's pause and let's thought. What could Jesus be referring to as light? Light that is going to be put up here and broadcasted, not hidden. What could be light? It could be his message, right? Is his message light to the world? The gospel, yes, no? Is that a possibility? Could it be truth? Any truth that he is speaking, it is not to be hidden, it is to be broadcasted. Is that a possibility? Say yes. Okay, okay. Just see if you're awake. What is possibly, what could or who could he be referring to? Who is the light of the world? Who is the light who shines in the darkness? Who is the one that says, you know, I came as light to give life? It's Jesus Christ, right? Okay, let's, let's let's take that scenario. Jesus, at this time in his ministry, is he, is he come to the world to be covered up, to be squelched, to be ignored? The answer is no. But what, do the Pharisees want that? Do the Sadducees want that to happen? And the answer is yes. That's what they want. And then he goes on, he says, anything that is currently now hidden shall not stay hidden. It's going to be made manifest. And it's going to be declared. And it's going to be, goes on, and anything that is kept secret, it's going to be coming abroad. That can refer to his message. His message that right now is trying to be stifled. Or he himself, trying to be, trying to be kept down, it's, it's going to move. It's going to be proclaimed. It's going to be seen everywhere. Can I, can I bring truth for the disciples to remember this? For the disciples, there's a lesson here. God's work is always about lifting up who? Jesus Christ. It's about lifting up Jesus Christ. It is not. If you think of the 12, think of their 500, think of those following him. They need to remember this, that this is all about presenting Christ in truth, not hiding it. This, this future ministry that we have is not about making ourselves comfortable, making ourselves popular, making ourselves to be uh, in, in cahoots and in league and well-liked by everybody. It's not about us. 
It's not about us making money. It's not about us having beautiful buildings or building cathedrals and ministries to our honor. It's all about magnifying who? Jesus Christ. Lifting him up, lifting up his truth. The disciples needed to remember this. They were going to be challenged to be quiet about him, to never say a word about him. They were going to be told, we're going to beat you if you say anything more about Jesus, if you proclaim his name. They have to remember this parable that says, hey, they tried to stifle him in the past, but he said we need to magnify him. We need to lift him up and put him where everybody can say, we need Jesus. What kept them going through the persecution? This type of teaching that Jesus gave as a foundation. Then there's an, there's an unspoken but an inferred parable in the next phrase. And it comes right after, if any man hears or has ears, listen, listen, listen. Take heed with what you hear, with what measure you meet. It shall be measured to you, and unto you that hear shall be more given. Whoa, okay? He that hath, to him shall be given more. He that doesn't have, have it all. From him it shall be taken, even which he hath. And this is kind of, this is kind of really confusing, okay? It, it goes with the Jewish proverb that basically went this way, and I'm going to paraphrase the Jewish proverbs. To get, you had to give. The more you gave, the more you get. Um, let's go back to Elijah. Our series on Elisha and Elijah. That might help us to understand this a little bit better. In the series, in, in the latter part, in Elisha's case, Elisha's going to go and help out the widow who has no, no funds. She doesn't have a means of living. Um, and he says, what you should do is you should get pots, empty pots. Borrow as many as you can. Do you remember what the miracle is? She goes and gets the pots, and what happens in the house? They get filled. How many get filled? As many as she gets. What does that mean? If she had gotten more, what would have happened? More would have been filled. Do you remember in Elisha's story when he's talking to Joash, Elisha's on his deathbed. He's, li- he's lying there. He's winding down. Joash comes in and says, Oh, chariot of Israel, calling Elisha that. Protector of Elijah. Elisha. Elisha. Calling him the protector. And he says, Don't worry about Ben-Hadad. You're going to defeat him. Take the arrows and strike the arrows, and you're going to defeat him. Do you remember what Joash does? He takes the arrows. One... Two, three, don't say four. Okay. And what is Elisha's response? Do you remember this? Come on, tell me you remember. It was only four months ago. Okay. What's that? He should have done them all. Do you remember Elisha's response? He gets angry. He gets angry at him. He says, why didn't you hit all of them? Why didn't you strike? Well, by the way, it was striking this way or shooting, and we're not sure which. But he said, you will only therefore have three victories. What could he have had? He could have had many more. This idea that, okay, you measure out. That is, you're only only putting in this much. You're only contributing. You only get this much out of it. If you only do three times, you get three victories. If you only bring so many pots, that's all you're going to get. And I think what he's talking about in this text is us and the Word of God and how the Word of God works in our hearts. That you and I, if we take the Word of God and we, don't, and we only say, oh, I'm only going to take so much. I'm going to mete out this much for me. This is all I'm going to take. I'm going to get in response the blessings that correlate to how much the Word of God I measure into my life. How much I take in. Oh, let's, it could be this. It could be salvation. It could be the idea that those who reject, those who have nothing to do, who are not hearing whatsoever, if they only hear a little bit, and then they reject the meat of the Word of God, they re- the meat of the teaching, like the crowds did in John 6. Then when he got in-depth, didn't want anything to do with it. Then what little they have, they're going to lose everything. Because everything in their life is going to be gone because they never heard in full. They never heard in detail. 
I think the application can be for us who are the, those who are the, his disciples, those who are our followers. It, it fits Proverbs 9 9, where he says, If you give instruction to a wise man, he will become wiser. If I take in the truth of the light of God's word, if the more I take in, the more it's going to benefit. But if I put the Bible down, if I'm not taking in the Word of God, do I even lose some of my sharpness, my closeness to the Lord, the wisdom that God has available, but I am not feeding my spirit? He is saying to them, if I can give you a lesson and put it this way, he is saying God's work, God's ministry requires his disciples to keep on taking in more and more of his word. Oh, they have to remember that. They have to remember that in the days ahead. When you're discouraged, when you're, when you're attacked, when you're distraught, take in more of God's word. We never get enough. We never outgrow the need for God to teach us. The moment we say, I know enough, is when we don't keep going forward, but which way do we start going? We go backwards. Let me give you the, the, the next parable quickly. So is the kingdom of God as a man that should cast seed into the ground. He goes to sleep, rises night and day, day and night. The seed should spring up and grow. He doesn't know how. But it goes on, the earth brings forth first in this thing of corn. There's the blade, then there's the ear, and eventually that ear becomes full of the kernels. But when the fruit is brought forth immediately or come to completion, he immediately puts in the sickle and there's the harvest has come. His point is this. The kingdom of God works this way. We don't understand it. We don't fully understand what, how it works. The farmer doesn't fully understand how the seed does what it does. He puts it in the ground and he's patient. He waits. You know, the water's going to come, the early and the latter rains, and it grows. And when it gets a certain height, he gets the harvest. But he didn't produce this, he didn't do it, he didn't, he didn't make it grow. Yeah, he didn't make it grow. It grew. How that works, he says, I, he didn't know. And he doesn't, and I know some of you who are more into the science and the study and research since then, you can give more details. But putting it back in that culture, the guy who planted the seed, I don't know all the, the full process. I just know I put the seed in the ground. I am patient. I just wait. And it's going to grow. And when it's ready to harvest, then I have to harvest it. He's being very simple with his crowd. And he's telling this, them this really profound truth. The lesson is simple. God's work requires we must do our small part and trust God to bring in the results. We do our small part and trust God to bring in the great results. We plant the seed. And then we're patient. By the way, implied, the seed is powerful. We've heard earlier what that seed is, the word of God. We plant it and we wait. We're patient. But then when it comes to a point where it's ready to harvest, then we get involved again. We do have some tasks. We do have to put a plant. We do have to do the harvest. But who brings the increase? Some water, some plant. But who gives the increase? This is all about God. He's telling these guys, he's saying, now you remember this in the future. You've got a job to do. But your job is to faithfully put out the word, the seed, and then you let God. You let God. I don't know about you. I find this frustrating. I want to witness to some neighbors. I want to share the word of God with some people. I want to produce fruit in their lives. I want to have fruit in my kids' lives. I want them to all of a sudden change in an area as they were growing, and I wanted them to mature in an area, and I wanted to force it at times, and I wanted to make it happen. But God is calling us to give the word and trust him to bring lasting fruit. That's hard as a parent. That's hard as a grandparent. That's hard as, as some of you who are trying to reach your co-workers and your family. It's really difficult at times. You, but you have to plant and be patient. Plant and be patient. Oh, some, some are real quick. They grow. They're like the Apostle Paul. It's rare. But again, he had months and months of conviction that we often forget. But it's the idea of trusting the Lord to do his work. Don't force quick decisions because if you force a quick emotional decision, what might happen? 
The next time there's another emotion, they're gone. Or if they force something so quick, they didn't count the cost, all of a sudden the thorns come up and what happens? They're gone. So you put it all together and he's saying, watch how you work. Watch how you do the work of God. You need to be faithful in taking in the word, meeting it to your own heart, measuring it into your own life. If you do, if you measure it in on a good basis, God's going to give you plenty more, plenty more, plenty more of the knowledge, the blessings. As you give the word out and you spread the word, then you be patient and let God do, do a work in their hearts. Then he gives them the final lesson. The final lesson is whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God or what with comparison shall we compare it? It's like the smallest seed around at that time that they knew, the mustard seed, which when it is sown, it's less than all the seeds, but all of a sudden it grows into this 9, 10, 12, 15-foot bush tree that's huge with all kinds of branches that even the fowls of the air may lodge under it. Now, some will say the fowls of the air. Let's go back to the other parable. The fowls are satanic involvement that might get into the kingdom of God work in the future. The, the church that's growing and maturing and the seed is spreading. I don't think so. I think what he's implying is Jewish pharisaical thinking. Do you know who the Jews and the Pharisees call, called the fowl of the air? Do you know which group of people they frequently called the fowl of the air? You. Gentiles. I think what he's talking about is he's saying in this text, he's saying the seed of the word, something small, starts with Jesus, moves to 12, expands to 70. There's 500. Then all of a sudden there's a few thousand in the book of Acts. And then after that, it's spreading. And it's spreading into Gentile territory until it grows where there are thousands and thousands and millions and millions of true born-again believers. That even the Gentiles are getting involved in this whole idea of the work of the kingdom, that kingdom being some of the church age and some of the work in that way. Can I give you the lesson that I think he's giving them to his disciples? God's work will not be... What word do you want to put in there? I want to put stopped. They needed to remember that because they are going to face opposition more than any of us in this room. They're going to face persecution. They're going to face the end of their lives. They're going to be challenged at times to quit and they have to remember, no, this is, God said this is the way the kingdom is going to happen. The kingdom work is, it's never going to stop. My church, I will build it, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Those were profound lessons at a moment when Jesus is saying, we need to begin school. I need to start training you, my 12. I need to give you some lessons, and I'm going to expound these lessons to you. You're going to need to remember them. They didn't get it. They had to ponder it later on. But he's laying foundation for future ministry and we live in that age of future ministry that these are such applicable principles. Which one of them is for you? Not getting discouraged to quit? Trying to force people to become godly instead of letting God work in their hearts? Taking in the word of God so that you can continue to grow? Which one? Which one of these parables was for you tonight? that you should apply, and how are you going to do that? Feast on it. Meditate on it. Ponder the parables.